Well, uh, welcome everybody again um, to this evening and, and my thanks again to, to Dave and the, um, the team here for inviting me and, and, and trusting me to uh, the lectern here for a little bit of time tonight. And, uh, and we're, going to, we're going to dig into the book of Acts tonight. Now, I understand you've been going through the book um, for a number of weeks, and so hopefully this will be uh, more of a chance to take a step back and have a look at the whole thing as you've been looking at different passages through many weeks. So this will be like a little refresher for you, a reminder, and we will um, we'll dig in a little bit deeper every now and again. But overall, we're going to sort of get a framework for... Uh, for how the whole book fits together and what some of the main themes are in this um, in this book. So hopefully you've got an outline there. There's, there are some. I've got some PowerPoint slides tonight, and uh, and we've got some fill in the blank uh, for you as well. So I realise you know Sunday afternoon it's uh, you know can be a bit of a tiring time. So that, that's my my attempt to try and keep us uh, focused on what we're going to cover tonight. Um, so let's pause and pray and ask for God's help before we, before we look into uh, these big themes together. Father, we thank you for, uh, for your word. We thank you for the way in which it uh, guides us and uh, shapes us and helps us to understand who you are and all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way in which it uh, shapes our understanding of what you're continuing to do as well. And so... As we uh, think through these themes tonight, we ask for your help in uh, growing our understanding, but we also ask that you would deepen in us again a a greater appreciation for your kindness and grace and uh, strengthen our trust in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, the first heading there is just a quick question about how the book of Acts is commonly approached. And I ask this at the beginning of all of our classes when I'm teaching Acts you know, what comes to your mind immediately when you hear someone refer to the book of Acts? And usually, we won't spend too long here, but usually uh, people have particular debates that come to mind in current church life. Usually, if someone mentions the book of Acts, the first thing that, you, that, that people think of is, well, there's uh, lots of miracles, or uh, what about um, the gift of tongues and uh, those sorts of things, or... Uh, missionary methods and, and how people should do mission today, um, or maybe the baptism of the Holy Spirit and various debates about that in, in different denominations, maybe even views of baptism and church government and all sorts of things. So, so what often happens is the book of Acts is a place that people have in their mind as a place to dip into in a particular debate. So they've got a debate about such and such a topic and they dive in and find what Acts is saying about that topic, about church government, about tongues, or whatever it happens to be. And so what happens then is that people view Acts as a sort of a place to dive into, rather than thinking through, first of all, what is it that the author, Luke, is trying to teach us? What is, what's he emphasizing? What, what are his uh, main themes? What does he want us to take away when we're reading the book? And, uh, and so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to dip into a few particular verses every now and again, and we're going to kind of take a big step out and look at the broader picture. So we're going to do that sort of zeroing in and stepping out as we, as we think through um, what this book is about. So let's try this clicker here. Uh, where do I point it? Do I point it to you, or doesn't it matter where I point it? 
Up there. <laughs> All right, then. Well, there we go. Okay, that's the first one. Um, so the first question uh, you can see in your notes is, what signposts does Luke provide for us along the way? So some of these things will be a little bit, hopefully, a refresher for you. We all know what a signpost is, don't we? It's a, you know something to sort of guide us and reassure us that we're heading in the right direction. Um, does Luke provide us with any signposts as we crack open this big book of 28 chapters? How do, how do we know how to approach it, what to do with it. And, uh, and we see here that he does provide us with some signposts to guide us in our reading of the book as to what it is that he wants us to, uh, to gain from this book. What's he emphasizing? And you can see there, I've got, I've got those signposts listed for you there. Uh, they're what people call summary statements, a little summary every now and again. So as you as you read through the book, you're reading through all these events, and then Luke pauses and says, and so the word of God continued to increase and spread. And then he'll tell us a little bit more, and then he'll pause again. He said, and so the word of God continued to increase and spread. And so as you look down at those verses there, you can see I've got in italics the first one, the middle one, and the bottom one there is emphasizing the spread of the word. And so um, one of the first uh, things that we notice here about this book is that, let's see, here we go, the spread of the word. So this is to reassure you that the blanks in the pages are going to be filled in for you on the, uh, on the PowerPoint slide, so you never need to worry about missing out on what's uh, supposed to go. Some people get a bit nervous about filling in the blanks and what exactly is the right word in there. So this is talking about the spread of the word. Now, what, what is the word then? What are we talking about here when he says the word of God continued to increase and spread? What's he talking about? Well, as we read through the book, we find that we're given samples of various sermons as well as these summary statements. So that it turns out that what he's referring to here is the good news, the, the gospel, the good news of God's saving purposes through Christ's death resurrection, uh, so that forgiveness of sins can be offered to all who respond in repentance and faith. So that Luke is wanting us to see here, part of what he's doing in this book is telling us about the spread of the gospel. Now you might have noticed on that list of uh, summary statements there, there was two other references that I didn't mention in between these statements about the spread of the word, in chapter 9, verse 31, and chapter 16, there's also a discussion here about the establishment and strengthening of churches. So that we could say then that side by side, Luke is emphasizing both the spread of the word, the spread of the gospel, that means that it is growing and people are hearing and responding to the gospel and along with that, then churches are being established and strengthened. And so we have descriptions of churches. We have descriptions of Paul returning to where he's been. After having shared the gospel, he goes back to see how these churches are doing. So that his concern is not just with evangelism, but his concern is also with churches being strengthened. So... 
basic so far. Everyone's all right? Everyone, everyone with us so far? The spread of the word and the establishment of churches. That's not too difficult to see from the book of Acts, and hopefully you've seen that already in your series of uh, preaching as well. Of course, one of the takeaways from this is that Luke finds that this is the means by which churches are strengthened. This is the means by which churches will grow. It's through the preaching and understanding of the gospel, of what the message of God's grace is, of course, that we have in the Bible. And so that's why uh, a healthy church spends time digging into the word. That's why a healthy church will encourage you as individuals and as small groups and as a congregation to be hearing and listening and studying and reflecting and discussing uh, what God's word is saying. I want us to notice one more thing, though, in this collection of verses that we've got here, these summary statements. You can see in your notes there that I've said, uh, but notice the contexts of these passages. And uh, we're going to come to uh, chapter 6, verse 7, as the first summary statement. So in the lead up to this first summary statement, in chapter 6, verse 7, about the spread of the word, Notice what he says in the lead up to it, and I've got those verses there for you in your notes. First of all, there's the arrest of Peter and John, and they are placed in prison. So here there is an attempt to stop the preaching of the word. Here's a sort of persecution, opposition, where they're arrested, taken out of the way, and placed into prison. Now, just have a look at verse 4 in those verses there, in Acts 4, verses 3 to 4. Do you see the very first word there of verse 4? The very first word, after saying they arrest Peter and John, they put them in jail until the next day, and then verse 4 begins with, but, that's right, side by side with this attempt to stop the preaching of the word, we have but, says Luke, Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. In other words, Luke is saying, even though there is this attempt to stop, to persecute the early Christians, nevertheless, the word continued to increase and spread. The same thing in the next verses that I've got there. This time, it's not just Peter and John. Now, it's all the apostles. All of them are arrested and are put in jail in, in verse 18. And then you notice chapter 5, verse 19, the very next verse. You see that there? The very first word of chapter 5, verse 19 is again, but, again. So Luke is showing for us again, side by side. Now the persecution is intensifying, not just Peter and John. Now all of the apostles are arrested and thrown in jail. Here, clearly, they're trying to stop the spread of the word. But Luke places that side by side with this rescue as they are brought out and sent back into the temple courts to continue to preach the gospel. And then if you read on in the book of Acts, we find this persecution growing from Peter and John being arrested to all of the apostles arrested, and then it culminates in chapter 7 with the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. Stephen is put to death. So the opposition really is ramping up when we get to chapter 7. And chapter 8 then begins by saying that on the occasion of Stephen's death, a great persecution breaks out against the church. So this is really high-pressure 
times here. Everyone is being persecuted now, not just the apostles. Everyone is being persecuted. And in fact, we read here in the next verses that I've got there in your notes, that Saul, who we all know becomes the apostle Paul, Saul here, he's beginning to destroy the church. So this is really intensifying, isn't it? Going from house to house. He's hunting them down, trying to find anyone who belongs to the believers, dragging them off and putting them in prison. So here we have it again, don't we? An attempt to thwart the spread of the word. Now verse 4 in chapter 8 begins with, those who had been scattered, what do they do? They preach the word wherever they go. This is what someone has described as, these people are gossiping the gospel. In other words, wherever they go, they, they talk about Jesus. So this is the same theme again, almost. This is Luke saying, persecution and side-by-side side, continued spread of the word. Persecution, side-by-side, side, continued spread of the word. This time, you notice what he's saying. Not just persecution and the spread of the word, but it's the persecution that enables the word to spread. As they are scattered, the word spreads. So let's see, we could add here, these signposts that Luke has provided for us with these summary statements are like little hooks for us to get a handle on what this big book is about. It's about the spread of the word. That's what he's doing. Every now and again he pauses to remind us that's what he's recounting for us. But this spread of the word here in the strengthening of churches is taking place in the context of persecution. We're going to see how this fits into the bigger picture of things a little bit later. But this is just an important uh, point for us just to pause because sometimes, not you guys because you've been having a sermon series in Acts, but sometimes uh, people can have a little bit of a starry-eyed view of what the early church was like. Uh, Sometimes saying, oh, if only we could be more like the early church um, today. And uh, this is a little reminder that actually the early church was characterized by great suffering and persecution, and that even though there was a great amount of uh, preaching and people becoming Christians, this was only taking place in the midst of severe hardship and persecution, especially that last one there where we read, as the death of Stephen leads to an increased persecution such that people had to flee for their lives, fleeing from Jerusalem. So that's the, that's the first kind of collection of hooks there that Luke uh, provides for us, these signposts, this, the spread of the word. And uh, the next thing I want us to think about is uh, whether or not Luke shines a spotlight on anything. And so here we are at the top of the following page where we notice the very first verse of the book. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And I've heard a few people mention this already, so I know this is a refresher for you, but the opening verse here is a very important clue. Uh, again, another little hook that Luke is providing for us as to how we should approach this book. So, verse 1, uh, Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught. So, that's uh, fairly clear. We all know what his former book was, don't we? We all know that's, uh, that's Luke's gospel, isn't it? And so, Luke's gospel was all about Jesus. That's Fairly straightforward. 
everyone knows that. I think you, you would have all known Luke's gospel is all about Jesus. Uh, now, notice the little word that I left out of reading that verse here. The former book, he says, was all about all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. So in other words, Luke is helping us to see that volume one was about Jesus. And so now when he goes into volume two to begin the second book, he's not changing topics. He's not going from, okay, that was all about Jesus. Now this is all about you or all about the church or all about something else. It's still about Jesus. Volume one was just what Jesus began to do. But volume two is going to be then the implication is that this is what Jesus continued to do and teach. So let's see, what do you think this is going to say next? <laughs> here we go. Uh, so this is uh, shining a spotlight here on Jesus in this book. And so I've got some examples there in your notes. You can see what evidence do we see of this in the rest of the book. It's not immediately obvious because uh, this is remind, Luke reminds us of this just at certain points throughout the book where he'll give us a window into what's going on behind the scenes. So we're not going to look at all of these, but just have a look at a couple of them. At the end of chapter 2, the first verse there, chapter 2, verse 47, in this context, here's the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, uh, thousands of people respond and, uh, and believe and repent, and then uh, he tells them that Jesus is the Lord. And so then when we get to the end of the chapter, in verse 47, we read the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. The Lord here then is the Lord Jesus. This, he's the one who's building his church. He's adding to the number. Let's go over to chapter 11, verse 21. We read in chapter 11, verse 21, uh, following the persecution of Stephen, in verse 19, people are fleeing from Jerusalem and they're fleeing up the coast to, uh, and, uh, up to Antioch and they're telling people about the gospel and some tell, speak to Jews and then in verse 20, some of them speak to Gentiles or to Greeks and uh, we read that in verse 21 that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. But the beginning of the verse reminds us that this is because the Lord's hand was with them. Just a little reminder that this is taking place because of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, to whom they're responding to. Okay, one more. Chapter 16, verse 14. Over in chapter 16, the Apostle Paul, after lots of deliberating as to where he should go and whether to go to Macedonia or not, and they conclude that they should go across to Macedonia, they get to Philippi, and a, a lady here called Lydia responds to the gospel. And uh, we read here in, um, in chapter 16 that she believes in the Lord. But the explanation is given to us here in verse 14. It's because the Lord opened her heart. So just little reminders all the way through that this book is not about something other than what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. I've got some verses listed underneath that big, bold heading there. What evidence do we see of this in the rest of Acts? And I've said, see also chapter 9. This is kind of the most obvious one here, isn't it? This is the most famous conversion in all of the book of Acts. 
And this is obviously the conversion of Saul, isn't it? This is how Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. And the reason why he's converted is because he meets Jesus on the way. Jesus himself is the one who meets Paul and changes his life and turns him around. And so the assurance or the encouragement here is that even though Jesus has risen and ascended and departed from this world, this doesn't mean that he is now inactive or that he has now left things to go on their own or that he just said to the apostles and to us, okay, go and take the gospel to the nations and I'll see you on the other side. He's not just left us to our own devices, but he's continuing to work, continuing to build his church. And so I have, a, um, I have an outline there just to put these things together. Uh, different people break, out, break down the book in different ways, but this is just my little way of highlighting the continuing reign of Christ as, as the theme that runs through the whole book. We're not going to go through that, but maybe, I don't know, maybe you've got a question at this point. Maybe you might be thinking, hang on a minute. You're leaving out someone very important from your outline. You've talked about the continuing work of the Lord Jesus. But wait a minute, what about the Holy Spirit, you might be thinking? The Holy Spirit surely has got a a major part to play in this book. Of course, the day of Pentecost sort of kicks off the whole book with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit fit into your understanding of the main themes of the book of Acts, you might be thinking? Some people have even called the book the Acts of the Holy Spirit to highlight that important role that the Holy Spirit has. So in your notes, I've got a couple of verses that help to put this into perspective. In chapter 2, verse 33, uh, Peter tells us that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and... He has poured out what you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit has come because Jesus is the one who has sent the Holy Spirit. Back at the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus himself promised his disciples, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is the one who's going to send the Holy Spirit. So, okay, very good, all, all well and good, but what's the point? Why, why is Jesus sending the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit's role in the book of Acts then? And so we have some key verses here that I've got listed for you in your notes, uh, like chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit then, says Jesus, is to enable us to bear witness to enable us to point others to the Lord Jesus. So the Holy Spirit has this role in helping us to proclaim the word. Look at the next couple of verses. In chapter 4, verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and then speaks. It's because he's filled with the Holy Spirit that then he proclaims who Jesus is. Or at chapter 4, verse 31, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, I'm thinking you might be having another question at this point. (laughs) 
What does that mean? What does it mean that they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Were they leaking or something? Did they have this Holy Spirit for a little while and then no longer? Why, why, does, why does Peter need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What's that all about then? That's something I thought I'd leave Dave to answer uh, later on in the question and answer time. Uh, I'm only joking, Dave. Let's, uh, let's, let's have a go at it here. Um, if we, we read that similar phrase as elsewhere used in the book of Acts to describe something that characterizes somebody or, or something that um, may describe uh, the reason why that person acts in a certain way. So, for example, in chapter 13, uh, all of the, the people were responding to Paul and they, they, Luke tells us they were filled with jealousy and spoke abusively against Paul. In other words, jealousy so consumed them that that was what determined uh, how they spoke about Paul. They were filled with jealousy. Or elsewhere, we have similar statements. In chapter 3, Luke tells us that the crowd was filled with wonder and amazement. It's a way of describing this is, this is what characterized them. They were amazed. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Or the other side of the coin, I haven't given you all these verses, I'm just giving you these examples, Chapter 19, the crowd was filled with confusion and uh, didn't know what they were saying. So for Luke to say that believers are filled with the Holy Spirit seems to be a way of saying that this is how they were enabled to speak the gospel. The Holy Spirit gives them the help that they need to be able to proclaim Christ in the midst of this suffering and this persecution that we were alluding to before. So again, this is a reminder that this book is not saying, okay, off you go, take the gospel to the nations, spread the word, and best wishes. This is saying to us that Jesus himself is ruling over his people, building his church, and he's helping us to do this by enabling us to speak the word by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the power, gives us the strength, gives us the ability to point to Jesus. It's a reminder, of course, of our own frailty, our own inability to do this without God's help. And so this is a, an encouragement to Christians as they read through the book of Acts to be reminded that we're not left alone, even in the most trying and difficult circumstances. The Lord Jesus is continuing to be at work through his people. So let's see, what, what can we find up here next? So we've got the spread of the word so far. That's what we've said so far, isn't it? It's the, the spread of the word uh, and the establishing and strengthening of churches uh, carried out in the midst of persecution or suffering. And now we've, we've added another one here. Under the reign of the risen Lord Jesus and by the enabling power of the Spirit. So these are some of the ways in which Luke himself highlights what this book is about. It's about the spread of the word in the midst of persecution and enabling us by the power of the Spirit. Now, there's just a couple more things to notice here, and you can see in your notes... Uh, there's a, the next page has a, a picture of a, a picture frame there. 
Now we're going to dig in a little bit deeper here. That so far, these are sort of fairly clear, fairly obvious observations. If you've been uh, working through Acts together, you would have seen these things yourselves, I'm sure. But Luke, as well as telling us these things with these signposts, provides us with a frame, a framework to view this picture that he is describing. And by frame, I mean he brackets the book. Uh, like what we might say, bookends, that's another image, isn't it? Bookends, uh, or, or, a, or a picture frame in order to highlight what is going on in the center of the book. And so he's got these references at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book where he wants us to see what this whole book is about and how we're to understand all these things that we've been talking about. And so in your notes, you can see I've got um, uh, two references at the beginning of the book and then two references at the end of the book. And these four references refer to the kingdom, the kingdom of God. I've got those words in italics there for you in the verses. Uh, so, not, not just passing references, the first one there in chapter 1, verse 3, is a very important time of 40 days of instruction where Jesus is meeting with the apostles, and over the course of these 40 days, he's teaching them about the kingdom. And then we've got that very important question from the apostles. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? And then we have that answer about how you will be my witnesses and, and uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So two very key references at the beginning of the book. Okay, everyone with me so far? Does that make sense? So two references to the kingdom. And then when you get all the way to the last few verses of the book, we find that we have another two references to the kingdom again. So again, significant amounts of teaching as Paul in chapter 28 is meeting the Jews from morning till evening, explaining and declaring to them about the kingdom. And then finally, the very last verse of the book, the final words that Luke leaves us with, is that Paul was preaching the kingdom of God boldly and without hindrance for two years in the prison in Rome. So, at this point, I'm just wanting us to observe that. Everyone see that? Two references at the beginning and two references at the end to the kingdom. Now, in order to understand that, we kind of need to understand what we're talking about, don't we? What, what are we talking about? The kingdom, what's that? Why is he doing this, this frame here? Uh, and so, in your notes, we've got a little number one and a number two underneath that. There's a couple of different ways in which the Bible can talk about God's kingdom. Uh, the first group of verses, Psalm 103 and Psalm 47 and Psalm 93, show us that on the one hand, the Bible can use the words the kingdom of God as a... Wow, exciting. Fireworks. It's appropriate. We're talking about the Holy Spirit and... Uh, Thank you for putting the fireworks on for us. It's, <laughs> it's good timing. Um, so so th th back to number one there. Those verses there can talk about the kingdom as a way of saying God is sovereign. Uh, they're verses that talk about God's sovereign rule over everything. So Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. So in that sense... The Bible can use the phrase the kingdom of God just to refer to God's 
sovereignty. He's the sovereign ruler over the universe. In that sense, we're all in his kingdom. In that sense, whether we know it or not, he's the sovereign king, the sovereign ruler. And yet, number two, there are other parts in the Bible which talk about this as something that is to come. In Daniel 2, there is a hope that God's kingdom will arrive, will one day be seen. And Mark's gospel, of course, Jesus begins by saying, repent and believe because the kingdom has come. So in that sense, it's not just a general reference to God's saving, to God's sovereignty. It's a specific reference to the way in which God's saving purposes have arrived in the person of Jesus. So letter B there, the references to Luke's gospel, remind us that this is something which we must receive, this kingdom. Or this is something that we must enter into. This is something which we must enter in order to be saved, this kingdom. In order to have eternal life. So in this sense, the way that we're talking about the kingdom is God's saving rule. The experience of Knowing God as our saviour, having our sins forgiven and belonging to him as his people. In this sense, then, we enter the kingdom when we receive it like a child, trusting in God. Okay, so here's the, here's the thing, where, where the book of Acts fits into this. If Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, Hey, everybody, God's saving rule has arrived. And the reason is because... He's arrived. He's the king. And so, come to me, he says. He's the one who's brought God's saving rule. So that's all, all okay. And then Jesus lives his life, and we see uh, how he shows God's saving rule. And he goes to the cross. He dies. He bears the punishment for our sin. And he rises again, showing his defeat of death. And, uh, and so his saving rule is established through his death and resurrection. And then Jesus does what? He ascends, doesn't he? He ascends and returns to the right hand of the Father. So here's the question then for first century Christians. What does God's saving rule look like now? If Jesus is the one who has brought God's saving rule, now that he has died and risen and ascended to the Father, now what does God's saving rule look like? Up until this time, it was all revolving around... Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. But, and now Jesus has come and he's the fulfillment of all of those things. But now he's gone. Now what does God's saving rule look like? Look like? And so Luke is framing this book with these two references at the beginning and these two references at the end to help us to see that what he is describing here is what God's saving rule looks like now. Jesus has risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So this is a frame here to show that the spread of the word in the midst of suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit is in order to establish and fulfill the saving rule of God. That's a lot of fireworks. Uh, <laughs> so this is Showing us then, now not so complicated for us, I guess, now that we live 2,000 years later, but for first century Christians, what does God's saving rule look like? 
It looks like the spread of the gospel. It looks like the planting of churches. It looks like people from every nation hearing the word and hearing the message and people from every nation being gathered into local bodies of Christians. This is what God's saving rule looks like now. And this is being carried out by the rule of Jesus through the power of his word. So part of what Luke is doing is highlighting the faithfulness of God to his promises and the outworking of God's saving rule that it is still being accomplished through Jesus, even now as he sits and rules at the right hand of the Father. This was, of course, crucial for early Christians to understand because, as we've seen already, part of what they are encountering as the gospel spreads is ongoing persecution and suffering. We saw this morning uh, the real world of shipwreck and, and famine and disease and death and uh, the unplanned changes. That's part of the real world in which God's word continues to spread. And so Luke is reminding his readers that in the midst of all of these things, God's saving rule is still being established, is still being seen as the gospel goes and grows and churches are established. Now, one last little picture here. (laughs) Is it getting closer? (laughs) One last little picture here. Here's the question then. Why, Why all of this? Why did Luke write all of these things? And uh, I have a reference there right back to the very beginning of Luke's gospel. The opening verses there where Luke uh, opens up not only volume one but also volume two by telling us why he is writing. And this is very helpful for us to understand then. Why is he talking about the spread of the word in the midst of persecution by the power of the spirit under the reign of Christ all to show us what God's saving rule looks like? Why is he doing all of this? Well, we read in the opening verses there of Luke's gospel that he's writing these things to someone like Theophilus so that you may know, and I've got a couple of blanks there. Um, Does anyone want to yell out the two words (laughs) that are missing from there? Why is Luke writing? So that you may know the certainty, thank you, the certainty uh, of the things you have been taught. In other words here, what he's, another word that we might use here for certainty would be what? What's another word that we could use for certainty? See, I have to yell it out. <laughs> yeah, truth maybe, so that you might know the truth or the certainty. If someone needs to be certain about something, what are they seeking? What are they looking for? They're looking for assurance, aren't they? They're needing assurance of the things that they have been taught. And so part of the reason then why Luke is writing both volume one and volume two is that he's writing for Christians then because they've been taught. They know, says Luke, the things that have been fulfilled among us. They know the things, says Luke, that have been handed down to us. But what they need to have is not more information. What they need to have is assurance. Now, why do you think, why would, why would these early Christians need assurance then of the, the, the truth or the certainty of these things? It's because, as we've seen, much 
of what takes place in the early church takes place in the context of suffering and persecution. And so these early Christians are hearing about Jesus, they've responded to Jesus, and they're wondering, why am I still facing this persecution? If Jesus is the king, if he's ruling, why is there this persecution? If he's the one who has fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament, why are the Jewish people who read the same Bible as us, why are they rejecting him? Why are they persecuting us? And so this book is written here with a very pastoral aim for Christians to be reassured in the midst of our daily lives as we seek to share the gospel with our friends and family, to be reassured that Jesus really is who he said he was, that Jesus really is truly the Messiah, the promised one that was to come. This book is written to provide assurance to us that God's saving rule really is continuing to be accomplished through Jesus as he reigns at the right hand of the Father. This book is written to provide us with assurance that the Holy Spirit really does help us as we seek to talk with our friends and neighbours about the Lord Jesus. This book is written to assure us that those who belong to Jesus really are truly God's people by his grace. And so... If we put it all together, I've got a box full of blanks there at the bottom of the, of the page. If we were to put all this together, there's, there's all the blanks and uh, there's all the words. <laughs> if we were to put all this together, I think uh, we could say that Luke is writing so that believers in Jesus may be assured that even in the midst of suffering, the promised saving rule or, or kingdom of God is being accomplished. And that this is being accomplished by the continuing reign of the risen Lord Jesus. And it's being accomplished through the spread of the word to all nations. And this is happening by the Holy, by his Holy Spirit-empowered people. And his Holy Spirit-empowered people are established in their faith by the word in local churches. So that's me trying to fit everything into one sentence. <laughs> uh, I'm sure if there are any English teachers among us, they would uh, be having a fit at that as a sentence. But anyway, that's... Uh, too many words to try and fill in the blanks, but uh, that's, that's me having a go at putting all of those themes together in one little place, I guess, as we think about this book. So that's it. I think that's uh, Dave's going to come up and see if we have any 